today on Against the Grain. The old left, we're told, was narrowly focused on issues of class to the detriment of other struggles, such as those of queer people. But my guest argues that there has long been an affinity between political and sexual dissidents. Aaron Lechleiter suggests that McCarthyism and the Cold War obscured history that was an open secret in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and beyond of the complex entanglement of homosexuality and communism. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. At the height of the left's mass strength in the early 20th century, during the Great Depression, the Spanish Civil War, and countless struggles against racism and repression by the U.S. state, radical queer and straight people fought together in ways that are little known today. In Love's Next Meeting, The Forgotten History of Homosexuality and the Left in American Culture, which is published by UC Press, Aaron Lechleiter extensively explores the intertwining history of queer people and the radical left in this country. He's associate professor in American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and the author as well of Inventing the Egghead, The Battle Over Brain Power in American Culture. Aaron, let's start with the dominant narrative about homosexuality and the old left. What is it and how accurate is it? So I think that a lot of times the narrative about the old left in relation to homosexuality is governed by this idea that especially the Communist Party, but the left more broadly as well, was uh, predominantly a negative, pernicious relationship. So the left was not a place that was welcoming to uh, sexual dissidents, to homosexuals, to people who were engaged in same sex, in, and that there were disciplinary actions that were taken against those who uh, engaged in those activities. Um, and, you know, there, that doesn't come out of nowhere. There certainly was plenty of evidence that uh, the Communist Party and the left more broadly was not always a place that was especially hospitable to queer people. Um, I tried to complicate that a little bit um, without, you know, suggesting that this wasn't ever uh, the case. Well, your book, goes beyond the bounds of of the Communist Party. And of course, there was a left in this country before the establishment of the Soviet Union. But it does seem pertinent to ask you about how the Soviet Union's policies towards homosexuality shaped those attitudes of the left in the United States, especially for those who are allied with the Communist Party. Can you tell us about the Soviet Union's policies in the early years of the revolution and then how those changed? Yeah, so of course, some of this varies according to whether you're looking at folks, at least in the Communist Party in the USA, uh, at the top and people on the ground. So oftentimes the things that were set as policy at the top didn't necessarily get carried out on the ground. And there were people who were um, uh, associated with the Communist Party who weren't members and therefore weren't subjected to the official line. But in the early years of the Soviet Union, uh, sodomy was decriminalized. So homosexuality was for um, almost a decade uh, decriminalized in the Soviet Union. Now, that didn't necessarily mean that internationally every a uh, place where there was an active Communist Party was similarly invested in sort of decriminalizing and destigmatizing homosexuality. Uh, but it did mean that there was this brief glowing moment when the official line was not taking a particularly negative um, perspective on same-sex intimacies. Uh, that changed in the 1930s when uh, sodomy and homosexuality were recriminalized. There was a somewhat robust international response against that. So uh, there was um, a Scottish communist named uh, Harry White who 
actually wrote a letter to uh, uh, Moscow basically saying, you can't do this. You're going to lose a lot of valuable allies. You're going to lose a lot of valuable members if you do this. And that wasn't unfortunately taken up uh, in any serious way by the leadership and the, de the uh, recriminalization did continue. Um, within the US, I didn't find evidence that there was a particularly active conversation or line going between uh, the US and the Soviet Union around those policies that were happening there. Um, and there certainly were instances when the uh, US Communist Party was in fact, disciplining members, um, particularly accelerating around 1938 uh, domestically. Um, but even during the period of decriminalization, there wasn't really a strong narrative coming from the top um, that suggested that uh, decriminalization was something that the party was fighting for um, domestically. So, so what you did see in terms of activism around sexuality and sexual dissidence and homosexuality tended to be sort of outside of the top-down um, hierarchy uh, within the Communist Party in the U.S. And with that in mind, would you say that, that you found differences between different currents of the radical left as they related to attitudes towards sexual dissidents were those who were outside of the communist party but on the radical left more open less open or is it too hard to generalize it's a little hard to generalize in terms of over time because there's so much ebb and flow. Um, so in the period of the Popular Front, you know, this sort of broad, capacious, anti-fascist moment, um, there were so many alliances that were built among organizations on the left that the sort of general tenor was so inclusive that some of those differences um, didn't play out as dramatically as they did in earlier periods. But I would say even during the period of the 1920s and the 1930s, before you moved to the Popular Front, there was this very interesting thing that happened, which was that especially the Communist Party was conceived as deviant. The idea of participating in a revolutionary movement that was fighting for the overthrow of the capitalist state, um, it was such a, uh, an extreme position that it seemed to especially attract people who found themselves marginalized within American society more generally. So rather than being an impediment, that was in some ways a point of entry for uh, queer people to enter into radical politics. So while the top-down hierarchy might have made it less a hospitable place, the fact that it was so radical, that it was such a place that was um, militant and revolutionary, that that kind of deviant dimension to the political activism of the Communist Party in some ways seemed to be attractive to queer people who themselves felt really marginalized um, under the present American government and, and laws and whatnot. Um, and so we're willing to join up with that. Um, that being said, there were earlier movements among anarchists, for example, that had been pretty um, open about thinking about homosexuality as being something that was part of, um, you know, part of the movement. Uh, but what I found was that the Communist Party's anti-racism, which was less of a central um, theme within uh, other organizations and other leftist um, movements, the anti-racism became also a point of entry for sexual dissidents to think about sexual politics, both, uh, both in terms of we'd say now intersectionally, they didn't use that language, but, um, and also thinking about the um, structures of power that were uh, common to um, uh, keeping racism and misogyny in place, sometimes being repurposed to think about uh, sexual dissidence as well. So there was, you know, there was some um, particular nuances to the Communist Party specifically that I think set it apart. Uh, but by no means was that I exclusive. And, and you know, as, as, as you know, the left, um, people moved in and out of different parties. They joined with a party and then they left, but they were still very sympathetic to the party goals. So it's hard to really overly generalize um, about that. Sure. Well, tell us a bit more about that anti-racism, especially those efforts within the Communist Party and how that 
in some way helped foster what you're saying is a natural affinity of dissidents on the left and sexual dissidents to come together in radical politics? Yeah, so I think the easiest way to get into that is by thinking about one particular example of of what I'm describing there, which is an article that was written by uh, John Pittman, an editorial in 1932, which was opposing prejudice against homosexuals. Now, this was a piece that was published in a radical black newspaper coming out of San Francisco. John Pittman was an editor. He was very outspoken in his editorials. He tended to uh, push for quite radical positions on race, on labor. Um, He was himself a black radical organizer, ended up editing People's World, which is a communist newspaper a little bit later. Um, But in 1932, in his San Francisco black radical newspaper, he published this editorial about prejudice against homosexuals and really uh, sort of called out the ways that people in the community of San Francisco had made sport out of um, a sort of drag masquerade ball and argued that if you were committed to a strongly anti-racist position, as pretty much everybody who read The Spokesman would have been, um, that you had to sort of uh, reject prejudice in all its forms. And so that became a sort of point of entry for Pittman to think carefully about sexuality and sexual politics and the ways that prejudice could be uh, working in multiple registers. So he made this case that if you're opposed to race prejudice, you also have to be opposed to prejudice against homosexuals because um, the struggle is shared. And that was a position that I think really came out of his commitment to opposing racial capitalism, to setting up some kind of black radical rhetoric um, to to try and combat uh, racism. And he just kind of, I don't even want to say repurposed because for him, they were just so intimately connected and part of this broad revolutionary struggle in which, you know, prejudice was was bad in whatever form it took. Um, that to me was really powerful. And and also sort of unexpected because what I knew of radical politics prior to the new left suggested that that didn't occur till later. Thinking about race and sexuality as being part of the same conversation didn't come until later. And that was in 1932. And, you know, that's just one example. And it's a particularly outspoken example. I think you didn't see this that often in which, you know, prejudice against homosexuals was named as such. Uh, But that general tone, that general sort of sense of um, anti-racism as being something that was uh, able to open up a a, a broad kind of sweeping radical politics, that was something that was shared a lot um, over the course of the 20s through really the 1940s. Aaron Lechleiter is my guest. We're talking about his book, Love's Next Meeting, The Forgotten History of Homosexuality and the Left in American Culture. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. One of the things that you write about in Love's Next Meeting is that beyond this natural affinity of dissidents, political dissidents, sexual dissidents, beyond their this natural affinity for each other, that people on the radical left, people with radical politics, and people who were sexual dissidents often shared similar spaces, and in other words, came together in all sorts of places. Can you tell us about that and the ways that that fostered a sense of shared concerns? Yeah, so I was really interested to find how often particular kinds of spaces, especially in urban spaces, uh, there were both literal intersecting spaces in places like public parks. So for example, Washington, Washington Park in Chicago was a space where there were a lot of open air meetings, sort of soapbox speeches, um, radical organizing. Murray Houston gave big 
lectures for um, black Chicagoans to uh, come together uh, and hear about Marxist traditions. Um, and those same spaces oftentimes house these kinds of cruising grounds. And we tend to think about those as being sort of separate spaces, right? There's, there's political spaces and there's sexual spaces. But what I found was for many folks, there was an easy transition from one of those spaces to another. So Jim Kepner, who became really involved in the gay rights movement in the 1950s, uh, had been a communist organizer and he would go to Pershing Square in Los Angeles and he would cruise and he would go to these lectures. And so there was this kind of interplay between the different kinds of uh, intimacies, political intimacies and sexual intimacies that actually folded into one another in ways that were really meaningful for the people that um, were walking both of those paths. So that was one place where those kinds of physical intersections occurred. And then there were, of course, the spaces that were um, sort of on the outskirts of society where there was, you know, through, you know, red light districts and um, the, the spaces of poor um, and working class neighborhoods and cities where oftentimes the presence of the kind of respectability that was found in more middle class and upper class neighborhoods just wasn't as operative. And those were spaces where you found the proletariat that was being organized by the left. And you also tended to find a lot more of an open form of sexuality. So that was something that came up a lot in um, in representations and in memoirs was um, how you sort of couldn't ignore the way that those spaces um, were traversed by leftists and by queer people. Um, I'll give one more example, uh, which was uh, in the space of the YMCA. So there was in the 1920s an article about um, the YMCA and sort of the locker room uh, of the YMCA. And the person writing this article in New Masses, which was a big leftist uh, magazine during the uh, 20s and 30s, the person writing this profile of the YMCA talks about how people were in the locker room talking about communism and they were also uh, wolf whistling each other. So um, so there was a kind of uh, sexual cruising that was happening. And in that same space, there was political organizing happening. So people were just brushing up against each other uh, in these spaces where communists and queer people were um, both present. Um, so those conversations were facilitated by that. And one place where the common interests of communists and sexual dissidents became uh, quite entangled was around the question of obscenity. I wonder if you could tell us the context in which there were crackdowns on both groups. Obviously, the point here is that they often inter overlapped, but what was the context in which uh, these crackdowns took place over their purported obscenity? Yeah, so New Masses as a magazine was an interesting uh, uh, periodical to look at because the fact was they weren't publishing anything that was that obscene. And yet they were constantly being harassed by the postmaster because anti-obscenity laws, they were used to suppress radical content. And that wasn't exclusive to this one magazine, but it was sort of emblematic of the kind of ways that obscenity laws instrumentalized in order to prevent radical content from being sent through the mails. But the editors of New Masses and the publishers became like very adept at navigating that. So because they and they actually managed to extract some pretty big sums um, when they were unfairly prevented from publishing or sending the magazine through the mail. So they were so adept at fighting against the obscenity laws that were used to prevent radical content from being disseminated that they sort of became more open to content that actually could be seen as obscene, writing about sex radicalism. Um, because they already knew how to get around those obscenity laws. They already knew how to advocate for being able to publish the content that they wanted to publish. So they were uniquely primed in some ways, more so than respectable, you know, middle class magazines like the Saturday Evening Post that, you know, just could not publish sexual content and be fine. New Masses was going to get it either way. 
So they just sort of used that as, as an opportunity to push against all kinds of content to the point where they even it, at one point hosted a ironic anti-obscenity ball where they encouraged people coming to this fundraising masquerade to dress up like Puritans, sort of this ironic, um, ironic party where everybody was posing as the anti-obscenity crusaders um, and they made sport of it. They, they just were fearless in that regard because they were so skilled at already navigating that because of their radicalism. Um, so that was one place where I think you saw a sort of um, alignment of um, pushing against anti-obscenity laws to then take advantage of the space that that opened up uh, on the left. It's interesting because obviously the left also has had its roots in bohemianism and cultural workers being very much part of of the left in the teens and the 20s and the 30s. But it was interesting you also wrote about those who were sexually conservative on the left, including the writer Upton Sinclair. Tell us about the sort of counterpoint of this more conservative take. Yes, yeah, so certainly uh, I try to cover as much ground as possible. And part of the ground that I have to cover is that there was this strain of um, sexual conservatism that was found um, uh, on the left. And Upton Sinclair, I think, wore that badge sort of proudly. So he would refer to himself as the prized prude of the uh, socialist movement and, you know, sort of made fun of himself a little bit for it. Um, and he was oftentimes enlisted to provide the kind of um, conservative uh, perspective on sexuality. You know, he was not he 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 would talk about sex as being something that should be not a main focus of uh, radical politics. And he took on some of the uh, sex radicals for being sort of just too too distracted from the main goal, which was, of course, uh anti-capitalism. Um, so he sort of took that on, but he was himself also, even in spite of that, he also found himself in the crosshairs of the moral crusaders himself. Um, you know, when he wrote his book, Oil, it was banned and he came up with all kinds of little schemes to uh, sell the Bible in the end papers of his novel. Um, to, to sort of make fun of this, but he was also willing to put himself out there and sort of fight in favor of monogamy, um, in favor of a sort of conservative sexual politics uh, from a leftist perspective. Um, but it was almost always something that appeared in conversation. So even if he was being enlisted to represent this um, more um, abstemious strand of leftist uh, perspective, he was almost always doing that in conversation with uh, radicals who were taking a more critical position on monogamy or on, um, you know, traditional uh, marriage and whatnot. So it was part of a conversation, and and I think he played a valuable role in that regard. Um, to my mind, the valuable role he played was platforming the people who were giving the other side of that. But, you know, I think that speaks to how this was a conversation. There wasn't just one way of thinking about sexual politics on the left, uh, even at a time when it maybe wasn't the most critical, central um, uh, conversation that was happening among leftists. And as you've just alluded to, the kinds of debates that were going on weren't just narrowly focused on sex to do with heteronormative or homosexual sex. But as a whole chapter of your book explores, it was a time where on the left, there was uh, all sorts of thinking about radical gender politics and the so-called woman question. Tell us about those debates and how that fostered a wider discussion and openness to sexual dissidents. Yes, so there was certainly uh, a lot of energy behind women who were fighting quite hard to both have a seat at the table, but also to force the male leadership of various left-wing political parties to not see women's issues and issues around gender as being secondary to class struggle, to, to conceive of them as completely interrelated. 
And that was something that, again, happened in fits and starts, and it wasn't always successful. But there were a lot of women who were pushing really hard to force the male leadership to take their perspectives into account and to take questions concerning women very seriously. And some of the women who were doing that were themselves queer. Some of them were pushing, as, as you're gesturing towards, um, they were pushing against a broadly conceived heteronormativity that actually was oppressive to heterosexual women as well. Um, but there was a kind of reflexivity around thinking about gender that allowed for thinking about gender roles that could then sort of ease into conversations about um, sexuality as well. Um, at the same time, there were also women who were expressing gender in ways that pushed against the kind of associations of women with femininity. So uh, the kind of militant iconography of leftists as being, you know, sort of fists up raised and, you know, the sort of masculine musculature that was often associated with labor iconography, that actually got repurposed by women to represent a, a more expansive kind of gender expression that allowed for butch women, for female masculinity, for even transness to enter into the representational repertoire on the left. And I think that that also created opportunities for queer women to find themselves, to see themselves, to center themselves in the conversation. Um, and, and, you know, there's a great poem that was written by Valentine Auckland, who was uh, a, a radical uh, poet um, about holding a gun with her female partner um, to, to shoot fascists. And that was not a posture that was, you know, rooted in the kinds of, um, you know, feminine representations that were really common in the 1930s and 40s in middlebrow culture and women's magazines. This was something that was a lot more aggressive. It was um, um, a lot more uh, consonant with, uh, with the kind of masculinity that was oftentimes associated with men, um, but it was sort of being repurposed and reclaimed and made into something that had the potential to both push against gender, strict gender uh, normativity and also against um, a sort of heteronormative or heterosexual uh, paradigm of, 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 you know, partnerships and what that, what that can look like. Aaron Lecklider is my guest. We'll return with him in just a moment. listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today I'm speaking with Aaron Lechleiter. He is the author of Love's Next Meeting, The Forgotten History of Homosexuality and the Left in American Culture. That's published by UC Press and you can find a link to it on againstthegrain.org. He's Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. So I wanted to ask you about the left in in the 20s and the 30s and the linking at least by some of labor and sex now as you've noted uh, the way that the old left has been regarded has been one of a narrowly focusing on class at the expense of everything else and yet as you write about in the book labor and sex were not seen as distinct realms, certainly by 
some radicals on the left and sexual dissidents. Tell us about that uh, linking of the two. That's a great question. And there's there's a couple of ways that I think that plays out uh, on the left. And one is through just the way that labor organizations thought about homosexuality within the workplace. And so there were some labor unions, uh, the Marine Cooks and Stewards, for example, where the presence of homosexuals in the union, in the workplace, was seen as crucial to the growth of the movement, the growth of the labor movement, and central to uh, the kind of conceptualization of the workplace as sex. So because the workers that were being organized by the MCS were working on boats, they were oftentimes folks who played um, a role on the boats that was sort of domestic, things like cooks and serving food um, tended to be jobs that were associated with a kind of feminine labor. Um, it attracted a lot of uh, gay men, and that was something that the union didn't shy away from recognizing, um, both in terms of uh, pushing against uh, uh, the kind of teasing and the taunting that could sometimes happen on shore, um, pushing against that and fighting against that under the uh, umbrella of the union, but also producing visual culture that recognized these sort of feminine workers as being part of the labor movement as workers uh, and moving away from that kind of muscle bound manual labor worker and and allowing for visual representations that were a little bit more expansive in the kinds of gender norms that they allowed into the room. Um, so that was happening within uh, that union. And, you know, that was something that was certainly not true across the board. The MCS was an especially um, a radical union. They were deeply anti-racist and they were on the on the leftist side of labor organizing. And there were other unions that were not nearly as radical in that regard and, and, and maybe were a little bit less open to both those kinds of representations and that kind of organizing. Uh, but it was available. There was a kind of discourse that was available that um, allowed for thinking about sexuality and labor in the conversation. But the other place where I think that this becomes something that is of concern to leftists, that kind of intersection between labor and sexuality, was through the particular practices of sex work. So sex work was uh, a particular kind of labor, and it was oftentimes left out of the conversation of what work looked like. But there were a lot of ways that sex work represented a, a, a labor concern that allowed for a sort of dignifying of the work of sex workers um, that also introduced new places to advocate for um, both better working conditions, but also um, destigmatizing the work involved in sex work. And, and so I think that that was something, especially when you were talking about um, queer sex workers, that, you know, surprisingly came up fairly regularly in proletarian literature and magazines like New Masses. It wasn't unionized. There wasn't a union at this time for sex workers. And of course, criminalization uh, made it challenging to even um, get people on record talking about it. Uh, but it was something that was represented in magazines and in, in fiction as being a form of labor and one that could be exploitative labor, but that also could be a kind of labor that could connect with pleasure, that could connect with uh, sort of empowerment of workers. Um, so that was just another kind of point of entry for those kinds of conversations. I wonder if you could tell us about some of the proletarian novels of the day, the stereotype of proletarian novels, which you know many of us haven't actually read, is that they're pretty moralistic. And yet you argue that some of these novels anyway, coming out of an anti-capitalist perspective, were quite open in their exploration of the themes of sexual dissidence. Yeah, before I even knew that I would be able to find any records of lived experiences of queer people on the left, I entered into this project through proletarian literature. So when I was reading all this proletarian fiction, 
um, before this project was even a project, I just couldn't believe how often queer themes emerged in the literature. And that was true of so many novels that are relatively well-known, but then others that are less well-known. So for example, uh, the first novel in the U.S. that actually talked about Hitler was written by someone named Edward Dahlberg. It was called Those Who Perish. And it was published in 1934. So right after the rise of Hitler, he was scrambling to get this thing out as quickly as possible. And in that novel, an anti-fascist struggle in the U.S. is spearheaded by a queer character. And there's these passages in that novel that are just so loving. They're just written in ways that are so embracing of um, queer communities. I was really struck by that. And I started looking at more and more proletarian novels, and I found this in so many of them. Uh, proletarian fiction was a space that, for a variety of reasons, um, represented queer themes in incredibly complicated, but also very loving ways. So it wasn't actually that unusual, um, even with all of the proscribed demands for producing revolutionary fiction that seemed in some ways to make a kind of hackneyed form out of it. There was a whole set of expectations that allowed for um, broader representations of homosexuality. You know, Joe Sinclair's novel, The Wasteland, um, it included this central character who was uh, described as a lesbian, not, not, only, not only engaged in um, sort of this lesbian community, it was actually named as such. And people wrote, you know, identifying with the character, saying how moved they were to read this. And this was a radical novelist. The character who was a lesbian in the novel was also um, a radical writer who sent poems into new masses. So there was this there was this openness to these kinds of representations. And the last thing that I'll mention is uh, writers such as Willard Motley, who were publishing proletarian fiction, uh, managed to get these novels out in the world with really complicated representations of queer people. Um, but when you look at the drafts of the novels, oftentimes what we get in the published form is pretty amazing. What could actually be published, what, what was actually possible within the confines of proletarian literature as form took it even further and were even more explicit. So what we actually get on the page is a kind of palimpsest of the radical queer politics that were being worked out and, and kind of ruthlessly excised for publication. Um, so there was clearly the writers were thinking about how to, how to both represent queer people and lives, and then also how to make that something that could actually get into people's hands. And so compromises had to be made, but you do get the, the kind of um, undercurrent of radical sexuality, even, even when it's sort of a little bit buried by the conventions of mainstream publishing. Erin Lechleiter is my guest. We're discussing Love's Next Meeting, The Forgotten History of Homosexuality and the Left in American Culture. I'm Sasha Lilly. So in the 1930s, you saw the rise of fascism and the Communist Party, which is central to your book as the most populated organization of the radical left. Um, it shifted its stance in terms of casting this broad umbrella against fascism uh, called the Popular Front, and it entailed selling itself as 100% American. Tell us about how that shift to the Popular Front, which was not particular to the US, but in the US, how did that change or alter the relationship of sexual dissidents to the Communist Party? So I think that there was a shift both in terms of the organization themselves and the kind of rhetoric that became available. So within the organization themselves, some of that uh, sort of going at it alone, revolutionary politics that the Communist Party was using to separate themselves out from other organizations like the Socialist Party, like the New Deal Democrats, organizationally, the mandate that came down during the uh, fascists, the rise of fascism, um, 
that required a kind of coalition building that created opportunities for conversations that previously had been somewhat verboten. So that on an organizational level, there was a lot more of a conversation that was available to people, regardless of which party they were a member of, and even outside of what really would be considered radical politics, like like the New Deal Democrats. So there was a sort of organizational shift there, but the rhetorical shift was in some ways moving more in the direction of a kind of democracy um, that allowed for diversity. So the kind of emblematic example of that being the phrase, the people, yes, which suggests that everybody um, needs to be embraced. The, 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 the people um, in this kind of populist sense uh, were going to be the ones that were going to overthrow fascism. And it was an all hands on deck situation. So there was a sort of trade off there. On the one hand, the kind of attraction to aligning oneself with a deviant movement that was seeking to completely overthrow the state uh, that had drawn some queer people into the orbit of the Communist Party because of its militants, because of the way that it was fierce, that had been operative. That was no longer the draw, right? The draw became part of this more inclusive vision um, of the left. And at the same time, what that did was it allowed for um, sexual minorities to sort of imagine themselves as a, a sort of identitarian group that could fight for their own rights. And so I see the gay rights movement that emerges in the 1950s as something of an outgrowth of that, even if it's not often described in that way. The fact that there became some kind of vocabulary available that that prioritized sort of a naming of um, every constituent group uh, as of a national fabric, that became a rhetorical flourish that then led to the emergence of a movement that was specifically fighting in a somewhat narrow way for the rights of gay people, um, that takes off in the 1950s, and it and it takes off um, and, and in the hands of uh, leftists who had really steeped themselves in the popular front as a as a moment um, in leftist organizing. Uh, so in some ways that's good, right? Because you have this broad-based movement that's allowing for uh, gay people to stand up and say, you know, we're part of this uh, this country and we deserve rights. But at the same time, it also introduces this possibility of disaggregating from the very specific revolutionary struggles that had come before. It allows for a demand to be included in the national fabric rather than the revolutionary struggle that says that... Um, my struggle is your struggle, that, that, that if you really want to fight for liberation, you can't say, liberate me, but those other folks can fend for themselves. You know, the sort of broad-based social movement activism that's overthrowing capitalism gets supplanted with something that uh, potentially can be more conciliatory to the structures that are already in place. So, you know, I think that there's, there's, there's as with everything, there's some positive um, impact from uh, from that moment, and then there's some ways that it also um, creates a kind of division between gay rights struggle and things like struggles against racism and and uh, capitalism. Well, and of course, then there was the rise of McCarthyism and the Cold War following the Popular Front, which you know equally targeted communists and homosexuals, often conflating them as one and the same. Tell us about that and, and to what degree that further accentuated that dynamic you were just describing of people who were queer ultimately struggling for inclusion without that struggle being rooted in a kind of radical anti-capitalism. Well, it's certainly impossible to overestimate the impact of McCarthyism on pretty much any dimension uh, 1950s when it was at its most intense. Um, McCarthyism was something that was uh, both used against queer people, but also instrumentalized by queer people. 
So if there was this gay rights movement that appeared in the 1950s when McCarthyism was at its height, uh, that movement emerged at a time when it was possible for um, gay rights activists to disavow any connections to the left. So all of those connections that had built, been built during the previous decades uh, sort of structurally had to be disavowed if a gay rights movement was going to emerge and rise during this time period. So what's interesting is how much the disavowal of the left within the homophile movement, which is the name given to the gay rights movement uh, that was favored in the 1950s, and the way that the right tended to invoke those connections. So you had the sort of conservatives on the right saying, look, there is a connection between anti-capitalism and queer people. There, this is actually an intersection that is historically there, that there is a sort of shared struggle in overthrowing the state, that you can understand why queer people would, or gay people as, as they would be more commonly used at the time, um, were, were invested in overthrowing that state. And it actually was within the gay rights movement that there was this real push to say, we are not associated with the left. We are not trying to overthrow the state. We are good citizens. And so there's just this weird thing that the people who are remembering those historic connections between homosexuality and the left are remembering them in a way that's a, a form of discipline and punishment and saying, you, you know, you have to reject these people because of that connection. And then you have uh, among uh, the gay rights activists, this intense discussion disavowal of that past saying, no, we, we don't have those connections. Those don't exist. Those aren't there. This is being made up to discredit us. And there's really nobody standing up and saying, you know, yes, these connections are there. This history does exist. And we should claim that. And we should, um, we should use that as a source of strength. That's really not available. And the pressure of McCarthyism really makes sure that that's not available. And that's the sort of forgotten in the title of my book isn't really a, the title of the forgotten history isn't really um, about, you know, scholars and historians forgetting, but rather the strategic forgetting that happens under this intense moment of repression to make it dangerous to remember those kinds of historical connections and makes it imperative um, that any of those connections between homosexuality and the left be forgotten if, if the sort of narrow goal of building a rights-based movement is to actually have any chance of, of succeeding. Well, let me end by asking you more about that. So is it then really, would it be fair to say then that this notion that we tend to have now that the gay rights movement the flourishing of queer liberation really just began with Stonewall, began with the new left, broadly speaking, and that the old left was narrowly focused on the sort of class reductionistic politics, was prudish and uptight toward queer sexualities and dissident sexual dissidents, that in many ways that received wisdom that we have gotten is, is the result of of McCarthyism and a kind of defensiveness, a protective defensiveness around that? I think so, absolutely. I think that that is something that you can watch unfold. You can watch it develop in the 1950s as a narrative, as a story. And it's, and it's a story that's being told strategically in opposition to, ironically, again, the more accurate story that's being told uh, by people on the right as, as a way to discredit um, the left. So yeah, I think that that narrative sort of gets set in stone at that moment. And, you know, it's not to say that that's the only reason. Certainly there were all kinds of pressures that made recording the history of homosexuality in the left very challenging to people who were there. There were still restrictions on uh, what could be published. There were still people who were themselves terrified to leave any records of their histories, um, went to great pains to make sure that even when they left things like letters and diaries, that they excised passages that were uh, especially 
um, explicit in drawing those kinds of connections. So there were there were other forces external to McCarthyism that made the 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 narrative that you're describing um, more more sustainable um, to say that this didn't happen that it that, that it wasn't until the 1960s that you could have any of that kind of radical energy around sexual politics, especially um, homosexuality and the left. Um, it wasn't only McCarthyism, but I, I think that the impact of McCarthyism would be very difficult to overestimate. Aaron Lechleiter, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Aaron Lechleiter is Associate Professor in American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He is the author of Love's Next Meeting, The Forgotten History of Homosexuality and the Left in American Culture. That's published by UC Press at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. He's also the author of Inventing the Egghead, The Battle of a Brain Power in American Culture. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.